Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Phoebe is 40 years old. When she was younger, having come to Christ, in college she attended a missions conference and was very excited to see the lost reached with the gospel. She at that time dedicated her life to going overseas into a difficult country, to spending her life there, and that in fact is what she did. So Phoebe, after college, went to Africa and spent her time and intended to spend her whole life investing in those who did not have a lot of access to the gospel. And she was laboring alongside others and in a good local church to help people there in Africa know Christ. It was very fulfilling work. It had, of course, all of its many challenges, many she didn't anticipate. And as time went on, working in this local church in an unreached people group, what she found is that there were many disillusioning things. And it was not things that came from the culture outside as much as it was her interactions with believers inside the church, even in a missions context where every person, Westerner, who had come to where she was had left everything to be there to share the gospel. And yet, even in a group like that, there were problems, there were conflicts, there was a level of pettiness at times. But she continued serving, but she became aware of these dynamics in life, even in Christian circles, and it was somewhat discouraging. But she pressed on. Then COVID happened, and along with many missionaries, she had to leave the field. She came back to the U.S. She thought she would spend her whole life there. So now she wasn't sure what to do. She moved back in with her parents. She started going back to the local church she had grown up in. She was waiting to see if she could get back overseas. But as she's waiting, the waiting continued, continued, continued. She's living at home. She starts working in her local library. And she starts to realize, wow, my life has not at all turned out the way I thought it would. As time goes on, a mixture of having seen the darker side of Christian missions and the political tumults and the many fights and difficulties that happened alongside COVID have led her to just kind of settle down into a steady but rather uneventful, unexciting Christian experience. She keeps going to church, but she's not really amazed by what she finds there. She keeps reading her Bible, but it doesn't move her like it used to move her. She's one day at home looking through her old journals, journals from back when she was in college going overseas, and she's both encouraged and discouraged because what she finds there is a passion for God Himself that's been, to be honest, absent the last few years. And so she's grieved that where did that passion for God and His glory go, that passion that led her with joy to sell everything she had and to go overseas to make God and His great name known. But now as she's working at her local library, living at home, she doesn't feel that anymore. She still knows that's right. She knows her life is about God's glory. But everything just feels wrong, and she doesn't feel nearly the excitement that she did several years before. She's mostly confused and deflated, trudging along, wondering if that passion for God's glory will ever come back. 
is there hope for Phoebe? The answer that we are giving in this class is absolutely yes, there is hope for Phoebe. And if any of her story resonates with you, there's hope for you as well. The hope does not rest in any magic five steps that will get you passionate about God's glory. It doesn't rest in even an individual person who'll come into your life and encourage you, although that's always great. It doesn't rest in the greatness of any given local church or the power of its preaching and so forth to stir you up, to get you excited about God's glory. The hope that we have for Phoebe rests in God himself and only in God. That he is such a God who is glorious and wants you to see and love and be excited by his glory. If that's the sort of God there really is out there, then there is hope for you. So that's been the impetus of this whole class is that the hope we have in any of our struggles on Wednesday is God himself. It's his attributes. It's who he is. So today we want to take a little bit of time, like we've done, look at one of God's attributes, a summary attribute, which, which we call his glory. And then we want to turn and focus on how that applies to you, your wonder. And then we'll return to Phoebe at the end. So let's begin here by looking at what is the glory of God. There's something interesting in that question because for you and for me, the glory of God, it's why we live. <laughs> and if you have um, some theological knowledge, you're also aware that if someone's to ask you, what is your life about? What's your purpose here as a local church, but also your life individually as a Christian? And you will say, I live for God's glory. Many of us, when we hear God's glory, it's exciting. <laughs> it's Wow. But if we stop and just ask this question, what is God's glory? <laughs> Maybe just think in your own head right now. How would you answer that question? If it's the most important thing in the universe and in your life and is the summary of what your whole life is about, can you define it? <laughs> so it's okay if not, because that's what we're going to do right now. I want to give you a definition of God's glory as it's presented in the Bible. And if you struggle to define the glory of God, don't be too discouraged because there is a sort of complexity to it. But I think, this is the best I can do with it, I think that we can look at God's glory from three angles. I think the definition of God's glory really contains three pieces. They're all connected, and if you read books on God's glory, theologians kind of mix these together or emphasize one or the other. But I think we can get three that are distinct. And if you keep these three in mind, then as you're reading the Bible and you come across God's glory, I think you'll always find that it can fit under one of these three headings. For that reason, I'm not using Grudem, surprisingly, for our definition. He emphasizes one of these in his, the third one. But I want to give a fuller definition here. Here's my best definition of God's glory. It's these three things. God's glory is, number one, the sum of all his attributes. You may say, well, isn't the sum of all God's attributes just God? <laughs> um, yes. So you could see God's glory as God in that it's when we perceive God, we are perceiving his glory. It's all that he is. So that's why we call it a summary attribute. It's not his glories over here, his righteousness over here. It's a summary of all he is. So God's glory is, number one, the sum of all his attributes. It's everything about him. 
Number two, God's glory is his reputation. And number three, and the one you might think least of, in the Bible, God's glory is also at times the created light that surrounds his presence. And we'll talk about all of those. I was thinking, this is kind of a complicated definition. How are any of us going to remember any of that? So I tried in the good Southern Baptist fashion to find something that would alliterate, that would stick in your head. This is the best I can do. Hopefully it's, you don't misunderstand it. I think we can say God's glory is his fullness, everything he is. It's his fame. <laughs> this is almost embarrassing reading it now, but listen, you try to come up with something that means light that starts with a F sound. <laughs> I say it's his photons, okay? So we're going to say it's his fullness, his fame, and it's photons. That is created light around him, okay? So come up with something better, that's fine. I tried a bunch of different letters. None of them worked, so that's what we got. But you just need to remember, it's all he is, his fullness, it's his reputation or his fame, and it's the light around him, in this case, photons. And it's created, so it really is photons. So those are the three parts of the definition of God's glory. And I'm gonna, we're going to go through scripture here. Usually at this point, I'll give you some proof text just to show you I'm not just making this up. But because this is such a diverse definition, I'm actually just going to skip the proof text. We're going to go right into an explanation and work through some scriptures. So I can demonstrate to you that you really do find these three definitions or angles on God's glory in the Bible. So let's just work through one at a time in a bit of an extended way. So here's the first one. We're going to talk about fullness. God's glory is the summary of all his attributes, the sum of all his attributes. It is his fullness. It is everything he is. Let me give you a passage that talks about this. You're welcome to turn there if you'd like. We've looked at it before. It's Exodus 33 and 34. So if you get to Exodus 33, this is Moses on Mount Sinai, which was one of the most powerful manifestations of God's glory in the Old Testament. There he is, the mountains of fire, loud trumpet blasts, earthquake, lightning. It's terrifying. God is demonstrating his glory. And Moses, you may remember, was someone who God said, he's not like other prophets. He speaks to me face to face. Not that he actually saw God's face, you die, but it was that he communicated very intimately and closely with God. And that had already been happening ever since the burning bush, way back when in Exodus. And yet when Moses stands on that blazing mountain, almost abruptly in verse 18, almost what we would consider randomly, because they're having this discussion, and then all of a sudden Moses blurts out, show me your glory. So we would ask the question, what exactly does Moses want to see? You can see the mountain on fire. He's in the mountain, you know, he's up there. It's blazing, it's loud. You would think, you've seen God's glory. He was there during the 10 plagues that devastated the mightiest nation on the planet, the 10 mighty plagues over Egypt. He was there doing the plagues. It was him. <laughs> Hasn't he seen God's glory? He saw this glorious pillar of cloud by day and a fire by night that led them through the wilderness. Is that not glory? He saw the parting of the Red Sea to walk through and then it falls upon the Egyptians. Isn't that glory? So why right here in this glorious 
center of God's presence on Mount Sinai, would Moses cry out, show me your glory? It suggests, at least to us, that to Moses, he's aware, he's not seeing everything there is to see. He has this longing, like all believers do, for God's glory, and he wants to see or perceive more of that glory. What's really interesting is, you say, okay, God answers his prayer. He gives him a yes to his request. God shows him his glory, and we should ask the question, okay, what does God do to show Moses his glory? The first thing he tells Moses is, you can't look on my essence or you just die. Because humans can't perceive the essence of God. You can't look. He says, you would die. So I can't show you that. He said, but. So you can't see, in other words, all my attributes at the same time, who I truly am. You're limited. You're finite. It won't work. But God says, but I will answer your request. Because I will take you up on the mountain. I'll cover you. And I will cause all my goodness to pass before you. And I will declare my name. In this case, his name is just all that he is. I will declare my name. So when you get to chapter 34 and God fulfills this in verses 6 and 7, this is what we read. This is God revealing his glory. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. How did God reveal His glory, what Moses wants to see? How does God reveal it? He says, you can't see it with your eyeballs, but that's okay. I'm going to reveal it to you in a different way. You're going to hear it. He passes by and he declares, what? What does he declare? One of the best, most important summaries of all his attributes in the Bible. And that is the answer to Moses' request to see God's glory. So this is why we say the first definition of glory in the Bible is the fullness of God or the sum of all his attributes. Because that's how he answers the request. He doesn't show Moses, because Moses already sees the brilliant light that surrounds his presence, definition three. Doesn't show him that. He doesn't show him his fame. What does he show him? He shows him his fullness. He tells him his attributes so Moses can perceive or see, not with the eyes, but perceive those attributes of God. So when you are amazed by the glory of God, you're having your quiet time, and you are just amazed by the glory of God, what does that mean? It means the same thing as here with Moses. It means you perceive something true about God, and it amazes you. It's the sum of his attributes, that God is perfect in his love, absolute in his justice, that God's justice is higher than the mountains, his love is deeper than the sea, and you're perceiving all of these things about God, his beauty, everything we've talked about, and you just get a sense of those things, and you have a sense of the grandeur of God and his greatness and everything, his eternity, his aseity, everything, and your breath is taken away. Wow. In that case, you are being amazed by glory according to this first definition the sum of all God's attributes. It is, in that sense, the most important thing in the universe. 
because it's God, <laughs> the glory of God. So you could think of glory as sort of a stand-in. It's a way of talking about God, but talking about him as amazing. You don't talk about, you know, the glory of dirt. <laughs> I mean, maybe if you're into that thing or that's your field of study or something, you know. But typically speaking, you don't speak of the glory of something very small and insignificant. The glory of a bank robber. You know, we talk about the glory of things that are amazing, morally or in other ways. And so glory is the sum of all God's attributes. It's God himself. And that's how he answers Moses' prayer then, by revealing himself. This is important because it makes sense of um, something important for us in the New Testament. Paul, in 2 Corinthians, is referring back to Moses on the mountain. Because you remember, Moses was not only hearing God's glory, his attributes, but that created light was a part of what was happening on the mountain too. And it was so brilliant when Moses was there that you remember when Moses came down the mountain? He had to put a veil on his face because his own face was reflecting that created light back. People were scared of him because his face was glowing because he had seen God's glory in more than one sense. And so he had to put a veil on and when he'd go up the mountain, he'd take the veil off. And he'd perceive God's glory directly. And he'd come down and he'd put the veil on. And Paul uses that picture for you. He says that you, Christian, with the veil in the temple removed through the death of Christ, you come into the holiest place, spiritually speaking, and you behold the glory of God. You do it in the way Moses did in that you perceive God's attributes, his perfections, and you're amazed by them in Christ. You have a perception of them. And just like with Moses, that caused it to reflect back off his face. Paul says that's what happens with you. Here it is, 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18. He says, and we all, all of us Christians, with unveiled face, that's Moses on top of the mountain, take the veil off, see God directly. With unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. In other words, it's like that glory is reflecting off our face. That's your Christian life. I know there are a lot of other details. If you're struggling with temptations, you're trying to put sin to death, you're trying to be excited about the Lord, you're trying to abide in Christ. There are other ways of looking at it, but this is in some ways the essential thing. What your Christian life is, is you perceiving God as he really is, assisted by the Holy Spirit in such a way that you yourself reflect that glory. You are changed. So you might become a Christian and you are addicted to gambling. You know, you're spending all of your money. It's your whole life. You're throwing it away there. And you come to Christ and you see the glory of God. You see his worth and he one degree to another, it's not always overnight, but he is changing you so you become financially responsible, using your money to serve your family, giving your money away generously. You changed. How did you change? Was it because some preacher came and said, you better stop wasting your money and guilt-tripped you? No, you probably guilt-tripped yourself before you were a Christian. It was because through sermons, being in the Word, experiences, and everything, the Spirit was teaching you to see God's glory, and you really saw it. And it changed you. We'll see some more of that in the sermon today, how we become like God. So that's your life. See the glory of God, reflect it by being changed. 
So that's the first part of the definition. God's glory is his fullness. Secondly, there are other times in the Bible where that's not really in view. And instead, God's glory means his fame or his reputation. His fame. This might help you. For example, when you look at a verse, which probably many of you have memorized, 1 Corinthians 10.31. You guys know that one? So whatever you do, you eat, you drink, do all to the glory of God. If we were to make you give a vision statement for your life, what's your life about? That would probably be a good verse to just put there. Your whole life is about giving glory to God. Another way we put that is we say glorify God. It's the verb there. We glorify God. Now, you might wonder if that's the purpose of your life. That's why you're here. What does that mean? How do you glorify God? Because if we only had a one-part definition and God's glory was just the sum of his attributes, you can't give him more attributes. You can't make his attributes better. They're perfect. So how can you give glory to God? So he already has glory. Well, under the first part of the definition, yes, and it doesn't change. But the Bible uses glory in another way. It uses glory to refer to God's reputation, or we'll say his fame. And when we say that your whole life is about giving glory to God, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever? You glorify God, not by adding something to him that he doesn't have, but by increasing his reputation among sentient beings, angels and people, primarily people, but angels are watching too, it's you living your life in such a way and speaking in such a way that other creatures with conscious awareness, other sentient creatures look at your life, hear what you're saying, and they have a higher estimation of God, one that's more in keeping with who God actually is. So right now when you go home, you may have neighbors who are not believers. What do they think about God? Whatever it is, it's not a very high view of God. He might not even be something they talk about ever in that house. Or if they do, they think he's just used politically by people. Maybe they're atheists or more likely they're semi-religious, Christmas Easter at church type of people. And God is good, but he's more like a grandfatherly figure in the skies. And he shows up at funerals and things like that. Now that's a very low view of God. So why is that your neighbor? Because your purpose in life is to help that neighbor through the way you live your life, through your words, your love for others, who you are, you're being transformed. They're going to look at your life and see reflected in you the grandeur, the greatness of a God that they never imagined. That's why we share the gospel, because the gospel welcomes people into a relationship with God, and that increases God's reputation before, to them, God seemed low. Now to them, God seems magnificent and they would give their lives for him. That's why you're alive. That's why you're not already sucked up into heaven enjoying bliss. You are still right here on this earth to glorify God and that is according to the second definition. It's to increase his fame or his reputation. That's why missionaries go out to the mission field is to make God's glory, his name known in places where it's not known. 
And that's why you share the gospel with others. It's for the same purpose. So that's, in case you're ever wondering, the purpose of your whole life, <laughs> that's it. That's it. You perceive God. He transforms you. You help others see God. The end. <laughs> that's simple. That's simple. We know this is the purpose of your life from a passage like Isaiah 43, verses 6 and 7. Many of you have heard this verse. God is speaking of Israel, but it can very much apply to us in this case. He says, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory. He created his people called by his name. He created them for what purpose? to increase his fame. You're made for his glory. Some of you might be aware of a treatise. I can't call it a little treatise <laughs> by today's standards. It's a treatise. It's uh, not quite book length, but it was a long lecture sermon given by Jonathan Edwards in the 1700s. Very famous now. It is called A Treatise Concerning the End for Which God Created the World. It's a long, somewhat difficult discussion, biblically speaking, of what is the ultimate purpose for which God created the world. And we've talked in the past how God didn't need to make a world. He wasn't lonely. So what's the purpose for which he made this world? And to save you a lot of reading, <laughs> Edward says, it's his own reputation. And he presents it much more beautifully than that. We don't have time to go into it. But at the end of the day, it's for his own glory. For his own glory. To increase his reputation. Some of you have also read the sort of modern reincarnation of Jonathan Edwards. It's John Piper. And Piper has his best known book, Don't Waste Your Life. Highly encourage you to read that if you haven't. It's wonderful. But even just chapter headings, <laughs> even just titles of chapters from that book impact me. And I think of this one in chapter 6. Chapter 6 of that book, Don't Waste Your Life, is called The Goal of Life, Gladly Making Others Glad in God. <laughs> what a great way to put that. That's glorifying God. Gladly, you're glad in God. You're amazed by what you see in God. So you gladly make others also glad in God. You see how that glorifies God? It increases his reputation. That's what your life, that's what he says, the goal of life. That's the goal of your life. Gladly making others glad in God. You want to know more? Go read chapter 6 of that book. He'll talk about it. Now, one other point before we move on from fame here. God, therefore, shows his glory in many ways, every amazing act of God. So the Exodus in the Old Testament as a way God shows his glory. Boom! Smashes Egypt, brings his people out. He's showing his fame. Just the other day, I said in my notes, but I was driving, maybe yesterday, two days ago, and I think it was Elyram, Elyram, my, my five-year-old. He asked me, why did God make Pharaoh? because <laughs> we read through that Bible story. He said, we're just driving. He said, why did God make Pharaoh? And I realized um, the Bible answers that question exactly. It's not an easy answer necessarily, but in Romans 9, it's literally answered. Actually, in the Exodus story itself, 
God explains why he made Pharaoh. Why did he make a bad guy? And there's more to the answer, but the answer the Bible gives here in Romans 9 and in the Exodus story itself, if you remember, God tells Pharaoh, he says, for this purpose I raised you up to show my power and that my name might be known among the nations. That's why when the Israelites finally got into the land of promise, people already knew about God as powerful. Jericho was already scared of God because they heard about what happened. That was God's purpose even in Pharaoh. Romans 9 confirms that. Why did God make Pharaoh? To show his glory. But I do want to point out that while God shows his glory in so many ways, the clearest single way that God has ever shown his glory, ever revealed his reputation to mankind, is in the cross of Jesus Christ. I'm excited that we're starting a quarter on the gospel coming up and getting ready for that. Excited to jump into that with you because that is where we've been focused on God and his glory. But where do we see that more clearly than anywhere else? It is in the gospel. So if you want to have your heart warmed with a sight of God's glory, you don't have to go up into abstract clouds and try to figure out the depths of God. Just look at the cross of Jesus Christ. And there you will see more clearly than anywhere else the glory of God. If I can refer back to Don't Waste Your Life by Piper again, another chapter title. This is just the title of chapter three. Boasting only in the cross, the blazing center of the glory of God. <laughs> great. It's a great. They don't make titles like that. That's a great title right there. The blazing center of the glory of God. That's what the cross is. Here's... J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, quote, Do you see the glory of God in his wisdom, power, righteousness, truth, and love supremely disclosed at Calvary? Four words there, but they're important. He's, saying, he's asking you, do you see the glory of God? And then he gives these four words, supremely disclosed at Calvary. Meaning, do you see the glory of God most clearly revealed at Calvary on the cross and what's happening there. The cross reveals to us in some way every one of God's great attributes. We talk about the cross being where love and justice meet, the hymn that says love and justice kiss there. So you see God's attributes of love and justice, but also everything else. They come together there at the cross. His justice is satisfied. His love is poured out on mankind. His power is revealed that he initiates and brings us salvation. Everything is revealed there in the cross and then the resurrection three days later. So when we talk about God's glory as his fame, that is most clearly seen in the cross. So if your life is about glorifying God, increasing his reputation, the best thing you can do is tell people the gospel. Tell people about the cross and what it accomplished. That is the best way for you to glorify God. All right, so number one is his fullness. God's glory is his fullness. Number two, God's glory is his fame. <laughs> and number three, his photons. It's the light. It's the created light that surrounds his presence. If you look at Wayne Grudem, who we usually use for a definition, on a definition of God's glory, this is what he focuses on, is the created light that surrounds the presence of God. Let me just give you a verse to show you this. You already know it, because you know the Christmas story. 
you watch Charlie Brown or you've read this before, Luke chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. Now, based on what we've said of God's glory thus far, that makes no sense at all. Because number one, we said definition God's glory, it's His fullness, like He spoke to Moses. It's His attributes. Can the attributes of God shine around the shepherds so they're scared? No, nothing's been said yet. Nothing's been said. Just an angel appeared, the glory of the Lord shone around them, and it says they're afraid. So it's not his fullness. Is it his fame? No, they've not. They probably at this point don't even know it's God. They don't know what's going on. They're just shocked. <laughs> they're just chilling in a field, and all of a sudden, boom, the glory of the Lord is there. Nothing's said yet. So it's not his fullness, and it's not his fame. So what is it when we say the glory of the Lord shone around them? It is created light that throughout Scripture surrounds God's presence. That's glory in this case. So we need to keep in mind that third. And again, I'm just giving you these three definitions because when you read your Bible and you come across a passage like that, it's just not going to make sense unless you have that category. That that's another way glory is used. What else could this really be? shining around them. It's literally shining, okay? So clearly it's light. And it's not God, so it's created. It's created light. But often in Scripture we find this light associated with God revealing His presence. So in the Old Testament, 1 Kings 8, you may remember <clears throat> this, verses 10 and 11, they are, and when the priests came out of the holy place, they're dedicating the temple that Solomon built, the priest came out of the holy place. A cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Now listen, if it was just a cloud, the priest could still stand to minister. <laughs> Have you ever been on a misty day, foggy day? You can still do whatever you're doing. It's hard to see, you know. But this is a cloud that the Hebrew is Shekinah, and you have maybe heard, probably in not great context often, unfortunately, but something called the Shekinah glory of the Lord. It's referring to this cloud, but it's not just a cloud. When we find it in, in the Old Testament, it's a cloud that's bright. It's a blinding cloud, and it surrounds the presence of God. It's the Shekinah glory of God. When He reveals Himself very often, there is a bright light. You saw this on Mount Sinai because Moses face reflected light. That means he was beholding created light, and it was reflecting off of his face. You see that here in the temple when it's dedicated, there's a light. So very often the presence of God has this kind of glory to it. You see this with Jesus, because remember, when in Jesus' earthly life, before the crucifixion, when did he most clearly reveal his glory on earth? Anyone know? transfiguration. And what happened at the transfiguration except that, boom, brilliant light coming off of Jesus. Now, God from eternity past did not have a brilliant light coming off of him because it's created. But this is when God reveals his glory, he reveals light. 
when Saul, breathing threats and murder, is on his way to Damascus to get those Christians, he's knocked to the ground by what? Yeah, a blinding light from the sky. Ugh, and it literally blinds him. Again, because when God reveals his glory, there's a created light. And scripture often refers to the light itself as glory. 1 Timothy 6.16 speaks of God as one who dwells in unapproachable light. Now, we might ask the question, why light? Why not a rainbow? Why, when God reveals himself, not just a loud sound and that's it? Why does God choose bright, not just like dimmer switch, a little bit of light, but it's like blinding bright light. It's always blinding and brilliantly bright. Why is this created light God's glory, or at least attached to his glory? Why? Well, it's really, really fitting in a lot of ways, but probably the first way is if God's glory is really his fullness, we could see that as kind of the essential definition here. It's everything God is. Then his fame is just people recognizing that. Does that make sense? That's, that's an extended from the definition. So God's glory is him. It's his fullness. And then his fame is just when creatures who are able to recognize that recognize that. So that's his fame. This created light is kind of an extension of that. What is a really good way to help sentient creatures recognize the glory of God? Blind them <laughs> with a bright light, right? A bright, like a deep darkness, it just, it makes you afraid. Like, oh, wow, deep darkness. But if you had all of a sudden these lights, boom, brilliantly, what would we all do? Oh, my goodness, we'd gasp, we'd cover our eyes, we'd shrink back. There's a sense of fear there, but it's still a light. So really what it works in us is an amazement. Still to this day, and some of you know this better, I, I don't know these things, right? But people who really study aesthetic beauty in art and other things, light is a huge part of it. If you're a photographer, you do some photography, light is important, right? You know where you need to be relative to the sun and how much cloud cover you need. Light is a part of beauty. When we perceive beauty, there is light involved. And usually, I'm sure it can change culture to culture, but oftentimes you increase the light. There's an increased beauty. That's why if you walk into the temple that Solomon built and it's gold, uh, even on the outside, and especially Herod's temple in Jesus' day, from a long way off, you could see it reflecting against the sun, reflecting against it because it had gold on the outside. There's something awe-inspiring about that. It's one of the reasons gold is a beautiful, it's not just rare, but it reflects light very well. There's something amazing about that. So light is very fitting as what God chose to reveal his glory because it amazes us. Like, wow, that's amazing. Fireworks, we do fireworks coming up. Fireworks are amazing because they're light. If your fireworks did not emit any light, they'd just be sounds and no one would go out to see them. You go out because it's dark in the sky and then boom, it's bright and it's really amazing. So God chooses light, created light, as a way to reveal his glory to mankind. You have to know that or the Bible's not going to make a lot of sense. Here's Grudem on that very point. He says, it's very appropriate that God's revelation of himself should be accompanied by such splendor and brightness. For this glory of God is the visible manifestation of the excellence of God's character. 
The greatness of God's being, the perfection of all his attributes is something we can never fully comprehend, but before which we can only stand in awe and worship. Thus, it's appropriate indeed that the visible manifestation of God be such that we would be unable to gaze fully upon it and that it would be so bright that it would call forth both great delight and deep awe from us when we behold it only in part. God's fullness God's fame, God's photons, God's light. That is the glory of God. So let's finish up now by taking that into your Wednesday. I don't have to say much on this because we've already sort of applied this in just talking about it. But how should this truth about God affect you on Wednesday? It's God's glory, your wonder. Psalm 33, 8 says, Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of God. If you really are created to see God's glory, to perceive it, then you need to see God's glory. Or what are you doing with your life? <laughs> you need to perceive the glory of God. You don't have to be a hermit up in the mountains all by yourself in a cave trying to have a mystical experience. You don't need to do that. You need to perceive the glory of God through truth about God revealed to us in his word. You do that hearing a sermon. You do that reading the Bible. You do that sharing the gospel and hearing yourself share the gospel. You do that anytime you remember the gospel. You do that driving, saying a prayer, meditating on God. You do that when you memorize scripture. You do that when you're having a conversation with someone about God. In all of these things, you do it when you see beautiful scenery and you remember God made that. You do it talking to your children about God. But there's a way to do that without perceiving anything of God's glory. And there is a way to do that perceiving God's glory. We all need to beg the Lord regularly that he would help us to do the things we're already doing. You don't have to go do some major thing. Do what you're already doing consistently, but in a way that helps you perceive the glory of God. And wonder at what you're seeing. You know, we've started a podcast here at Faith Bible and... The next two of them, so I think the one came out already, and then we have one this coming Tuesday, are both, they're two parts on living in wonder. And my summary of what that means, how we should live our life is this, quote, ponder God's perfections until they take your breath away. That's life. Do that. Phoebe is at a coffee shop, and she's journaling again like she used to back in college. She's scripture journaling, and she's on Hebrews 13, 8, and she reads, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away. And she realizes she disobeyed that. Even as a missionary doing God's work, she had been led away from Jesus Christ, from really seeing him, from really knowing him the way she had in college. She had been led away by her longing for a spouse. She had been led away by her confusion at all the pettiness she had seen among Christians. She had been led away even by the good work of doing missions. She realized that everything else had changed in life, and she wasn't even sure what she thought about a lot of things. But the glory of God did not change. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, back in college, the same today, sitting in this coffee shop, the same forever, no matter what happens. 
And if the glory of God seen in the face of Christ was enough to excite and motivate her then, that it is still enough today. The change was in her, not in Christ. The change was in culture, which had been so excited about Christ and now is not. The change was outside of her. The change was outside of Christ, but the change was not Christ. It was not His glory. God was still completely glorious. She was still created with exactly the same purpose, whether that's over in Africa or in the U.S. at home. It's exactly the same purpose, to help others see the glory of God and to see it herself. And she still had that promise that one day she'd be in a city which, quote, has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. She realized it was a dark time in her own life. It was a dark time in the culture. But Christ was not any darker. (laughs) He was still brilliant and glorious in light as much as was seen in the transfiguration and enough to satisfy the soul that sees it. So she confessed her sin of wandering away, recommitted herself to pursuing God and knowing Him deeply. There is hope for Phoebe. Let's pray. Lord, until these words are acted upon, we've not obeyed them. And I want to pray that you would help us because we cannot obey them without your help. And yet we are commanded to do so. Therefore, Lord, in all humility, we come before you requesting the good gift of your Spirit who dwells among us, that your Spirit would work mightily in us. When you have revived your church in the past, it has always been a work of your spirit, and it has always been when your people sensed a lack in themselves, that they had left their first love. And we feel that, Lord, even as a nation, we can feel how excitement about you has waned so much, and distractions are everywhere, love grows cold, even in the church, and our prayer is that you would revive us, that you would send your spirit in a fresh way, the spirit who is among us, that he would awaken our hearts to see you, to see your glory and to be filled with such an enthusiasm and excitement and depth of joy about what we see that we are compelled to wake up and to share this with everyone else. I pray your spirit would do this great work so that your fame, your reputation, your glory may be known. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.